The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the official companion podcast for the new HBO documentary, Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, which premieres on HBO and HBO Now on Monday, May 4th at 9 p.m. Eastern. My name is Hugo Lindgren. And joining me in our New York studio is the director of the documentary, Brett Morgan. Welcome. Thank you, man. In 1988, using a four-track cassette recorder, Kurt Cobain put together a sound collage of disparate audio elements that he called Montage of Heck. It was pure, free-form expression of his relationship with the world. Montage of Heck is also the name of director Brett Morgan's comprehensive documentary about the Nirvana frontman, who loathed being called, quote, the voice of a generation. The documentary has been years in the making and is the first Cobain documentary made with full cooperation and support of the musician's family. Montage of Heck dives into the life of Kurt Cobain, the fragile and contentious artist who, in his mother's own words, was, quote, on a collision course with the world. Using his journals, Super 8 footage, and animations, as well as never-before-heard recordings, the documentary quite literally brings you into Cobain's world, from his turbulent upbringing in Aberdeen, Washington, to his tumultuous relationship with success, and finally to his suicide in 1994 at the age of 27. Well, let's talk the easy stuff. So you were what kind of Nirvana fan? You were how old when they were making their mark? Well, I was the same age as Kurt. So I saw them play in my school cafeteria in Hampshire College in 1990 for about 150 people. And then I saw them a couple years later at the Forum, their second last show in the United States. And did you kind of love them immediately? Did no. you have No. Why not? What do you mean, why not? <laughs> I, I like them. But you weren't struck by them and became a huge fan? Because that was happening. No, I, I just, I, I, I was in other stuff, I guess. What other stuff? What was the kind of music you were into? I liked the Meat Puppets, Black Flag, the Minutemen, a lot of SST bands, St. Vitus. And so when Kurt ends up killing himself, your reaction was? I don't remember. So he was an artist that you liked, respected, but had no particular fascination with? Well, I didn't approach the family. They came to me. Okay. And they said that everybody knows Kurt as a musician and the singer-songwriter of Nirvana, but he was really an artist. Right. And he left behind all this art, and that's what intrigued me. When you say the family, was this Francis? Was this Courtney? Initially, well, eventually it became the entire family, you know, mother, Courtney, wife, daughter, mom. And they came to you because they'd seen... The kid stays in the picture. And the thing with the kid stays in the picture was people really responded to the way that we animated photographs. It's this kind of unorthodox approach to nonfiction. And I think that was really intriguing. So what interested me primarily was the canvas. Uh I mean, that was my entry into it, was the canvas. Things changed once I began the journey, of course. But I think that if someone had told me I was going to be able to tell a story of a boy who documented his life through his art across so many different mediums, both orally and visually, I would have jumped on that, whether it was you know John Doe from Peoria or Kurt Cobain from Aberdeen. And what was your introduction to that sort of material? Like, I've seen footage of you, like, in the storage locker where there's all this stuff. Was there a piece of it that you looked at first and thought, like, oh, this is really something? What was the bait on the hook? Someone had brought over uh, some pictures of some of the stuff that was in the storage facility, and I, I just thought this was really fascinating. And I had no idea, of course, at that point. One of the challenges of documentaries are you usually sign the contract before you really know what you have to deal with. Right. And there was a moment where, you know, I'd signed my deal and, you know, we'd spent years trying to get the rights and everything together before I finally was given the keys to the storage facility. And I remember I walked into the storage facility the first time and there were paintings on the walls 
and there was a small grouping of boxes in the middle of the room. And I looked at it and go, wait, is this it? You got to be kidding me. Like, what did I sign up for? But, you know, film doesn't take a lot of space <laughs> and audio cassettes really don't take a lot of space. And so the, the real journey for me began when I opened up box 18, which said simply cassettes. And I opened it up and inside were 107, mainly never before heard, audio cassettes that Kurt had created. Some of these were mixtapes. Some of them were band rehearsals. A lot of them were Kurt's doodles, musical doodlings. There was some spoken word and a tremendous amount of sound effects and sound design that we would end up relying upon to build out the sound design for the film. And as I got deeper into this stuff, I realized that this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because Kurt, as I said, was an artist with a capital A. He never stopped creating or documenting his experience in life. From the moment he can hold a paintbrush, he was documenting it. The reason we talk about him is because he was able to externalize his experience as successfully in a song as anyone in the last 25 years. Well, he was able to also do that in these other mediums. So you have a guy who's, like I said, he's doing the sound design, audio collage, the film score, and then visually he's doing the paintings, Super 8 films, still photography. And in essence, you have an audiovisual autobiography of his life that fell upon me to curate. You know, I went into this, as I said, I wasn't a huge fan. So someone asked me the other day what myths I was trying to shatter. I was like, I wasn't trying to shatter any myths. If what I found was in concert with the myth, then that's what this film would be. And if what I discovered was in opposition to that myth, then that's what the film would be. The only dictate that I ever received from anyone was from Frances Cobain. And she said, whatever you do, keep it real, make it honest. That's the best tribute we could do to Kurt, to make a film that has integrity and it's honesty. And if you think about it, and you think of sort of the response to this film right now, all over the world, people are, are walking out of this film with a greater appreciation for Kurt than they might have had coming in. And I think that's a tribute to Francis for allowing us to go there. Because if you're doing Kurt Cobain, you shouldn't be selling rock and roll fantasy. I mean, that'd be doing a disservice to Kurt and to the fans and to the family. Had she gone through all that material herself? No, I went with her for, she had gone to the storage facility once and it was apparently a disaster. She was only there for a few minutes and it was with lawyers and Courtney and it was at a very difficult time in her life. She walked in and walked out. I went there with her early in the project and it was intense. It sort of felt like Christmas morning that she never had. Because, see, her and Kurt share a very similar aesthetic. Of course, there's no gene for aesthetics. She's definitely Kurt's daughter. When you say that, what do you, what's in your mind? Like, what, Well, like, for example, when I went to Francis's house the first time, I noticed there were, like, a lot of H.R. Puffin stuff, toys, and all these kitschy Freddy Kruegers and all the stuff that Kurt had. She didn't necessarily know that Kurt had it. I mean, it was crazy. So we go to the storage facility and we're opening up boxes and there's an HR puff and stuff lunchbox. And it was exciting for Francis, not just because it was her father's, but because it was an HR puff and stuff lunchbox. And I'm watching her go through all this stuff. And she had brought, I think, a pen and a paper and she was going to try to take notes and doc. And it was clear that there was no way this was, <laughs> this was like a massive undertaking to sort of document everything. 
it became very clear that it would be my job to go through this room and curate this film for an audience of one, and that was for Frances, because this was an opportunity for her to get to know her father better, and the idea of her just going in there on her own, I think, would be, you know, cruel and exhausting, and probably would take years. And how long did it take you? I mean, were you working with other people to go through it, or did you do it all personally? Well, no. <laughs> I would still be there. <laughs> I got this release form that allowed me to go in there. Uh-huh. And to be totally candid, I kept thinking, hmm, they could change their minds at any moment, so I better get with it. And so I put together a team of people. There was one team assigned for still photographs. There was another team that was assigned for audio. There was a team assigned for toys and sculptures and stuff. We set up a photo studio. I set up an animation stand for the journals. And the rule was nobody was allowed to enter the facility with phones or any electronics. They ought to wear white jumpsuits with no pockets on them and wear white gloves at all times. Oh, my God. I mean, we treated this like it was... National security. Yeah. Had you ever done any research like this? What would have prepared you for this kind of... Everything. I mean, I've been doing this for 16, 17 But in a room? I mean, it sounds kind of archaeological. I did the Rolling Stones movie, so I was in their archives for a year before I did this. And did the kids say in the picture. I did a movie called Chicago 10. I mean, I'm more familiar with archives than most people you would think. Who would put this together, the archive? Who would organize it in the first place? Well, it's not that organized right. per se. I think that a friend of the family's helped put stuff in boxes. And that's pretty much what it was, just stuff in boxes. At what point did you realize what the movie was or was it a kind of epiphany, like here's how we do it? Yeah, two moments of intersection. As I mentioned earlier, when I went into the vault, I really didn't know what the story was going to be. And I'm going through all this stuff. I I find this tape that had never been heard before of Kurt narrating a story about his first sexual experience. It was fascinating for several reasons, one of which it was a performed autobiography. It wasn't like Kurt telling a journalist the story. He was actually performing it. So it was a piece of art. And the story is important for several reasons, one of which is it pretty much is Kurt's experience growing up in Aberdeen from, let's say, age 10 to 15. It's very narratively driven, which is not part of Kurt's MO as a songwriter, lyricist. And the way he's telling the story is is rather chilling because he's describing these really traumatic events, almost with a Cheshire Cat grin. And he talks about his first suicide attempt. Which happens right right subsequent to that right. experience. Just that alone, hearing Kurt Cobain describing a failed suicide attempt when he was 14 obviously was a revelation. And then I carried through on my journey, and I was documented everything. And then you know, we would document it in the room, and then I would bring it back to my office once everything was photographed so I can now sit on and go through the journals at a more leisurely pace, if you will. And I went through the journals, and I went through all this stuff. And by the time I got through everything... I needed to go back to that tape because there was something that just drew me right back to it. And I went back, put it on. And this time, there was something else that got my attention. It wasn't that he said he wanted to kill himself. It was the reason why he said he wanted to kill himself, that he couldn't handle the ridicule. So he went down the train tracks to kill himself. And it was like the end of a Usual Suspects when the guy's uh, in the office and he looks around and suddenly all the clues are there. Because the word ridicule, humiliation, shame, guilt, were probably the most prevalent words in Kurt's vocabulary as expressed in his art. 
They were everywhere. There were places that you've seen a million times but never would think of. Like, if you isolate Floyd the Barber, there's nothing that shocking about the chorus. I was shamed, I was shamed, I was shamed. If you hear Kurt's cover of Ain't It a Shame, you know, you wouldn't think twice when you get to the end of the song and Kurt decides to improv a little bit and from the bottom of his gut screams out, Shame! Shame! And maybe the first time you're going through the journals, you don't pick up when he writes something like, I was threatened by ridicule. I'm threatened by ridicule. Or, oh, the guilt, the guilt, the guilt. Things start to pick up weight as they appear and reappear over and over and over again. And so I felt that there was something there. And it's something that nobody else could have ever accessed because they didn't have access to the material I had. Right. I mean, the amazing thing about Kurt is I was as cynical as the next person. When, when I was approached to do this film, I was like, really? Haven't there been books and movie attempts to do this? But the thing that I've since realized is that you can go and talk to 100 people who knew Kurt. I don't think that's going to get you any closer to Kurt. And you could interview Kurt. He was a pretty bad interview. He was a bad interview. He was very deceptive. You got to look at the context for things. The Azurite interview was done when he was doing damage control for the Vanity Fair piece. And he sometimes was too earnest. But the voice, the character, the cadence of his voice when he's doing an interview is different than when you hear unfiltered media of Kurt. So going back to our thing, was there anything left to said? Well, yeah, there was because... Everybody was missing the one thing that gives us insight into Kurt, his music and his art. And one not need look further because this young man documented everything. And if you're into facts, then perhaps that's not a great way to approach things. But I don't think one should look at a song like Sliver and try to deconstruct what's fact and what's fiction. I think what Kurt was able to do was arrive at emotional truths. So, for example, the railroad story. Did it happen or did it not? Because it was performed, and it is such a complete tale. It's a short story. It's a short piece of fiction. What matters is the emotion and the experience. And what I believe is Kurt arrives at an emotional truth. Now... If you watch the movie, you'll notice there's one point where I deviate from Kurt's narration. And it's at the moment when he's laying on the train tracks. He says, I lay down on the train tracks and put two cylinders of cement on top of me. I decided not to animate it that way. In fact, I have Kurt on the bank looking at the train. And that was, in that moment, just my way to sort of suggest, I don't know. If he went on the tracks or not. Or... Nobody knows. Right. But the experience of this is what matters. And so you said there were two things, sort of two discoveries. That right. was one story. What was the second one? Well, the second one was I originally wanted to be all Kurt, Kurt narrating the film and this and that. And after I listened to these interviews, I was like, I can't rely on Kurt to carry the film that way. Right. It's too pedestrian, and that's not his art. And I want to maintain a purity of expression. So I reached out to the five people who were closest to Kurt during his life his mother, his father, and his sister, who had never sat for an on-camera interview in their lives, his first love, his wife, and his best friend slash bandmate, Chris Novoselic. And there was a purity to that. 
wasn't 10 people, wasn't 20 people, wasn't 30 people, wasn't Butch Vig, and it wasn't people he worked with. Because it's a movie about Kurt's interior world. So here's one of the most researched and investigated artists of the past 25 years. What is the core foundation myth of Kurt? The family, right? Right. Nobody before me had ever seen the childhood movies that document Kurt's life from six months to eight years. Nobody had ever been able to sit down and speak to Don, Jenny, and Wendy together. So all these people doing these exhaustive biographies, and yet the one thing, I mean, honestly, you can look at the childhood movies and you wouldn't need to talk to anyone. That's enough. Those are interesting movies because they actually, those very early ones, they look very, very happy. You well, see Kurt and he's this bright kid and his parents look like these lovely people who are so delighted to be like having his birthday party and whatever else they're doing. I mean, you saw what I represented. You didn't see the whole movies. There's five hours of them. Kurt used to say that he had a happy childhood till he was 10, till his parents divorced. Uh-huh. I would say about 20 minutes into screening the footage, that myth was shattered. What did you see? I saw a boy who was idealized, worshipped, adored by a very large extended family because he was the firstborn on both sides of the family. Right. And there was a tremendous amount of attention, and he would perform for people. He seemed to really thrive being the center of attention. But then as some cousins came into play and his sister came into play, the camera tended to drift off him. And you would see him trying to get back into the shots, and then the camera would turn off. And by the time we got to the last reel, there was almost no footage of him. So he was sort of forgotten? You could draw your own conclusions. It's an interesting thing with the parents in the movie because they are the idea of a young teenager being passed around, sort of neglected. They're relatively glib about the way they talk about that. I didn't feel that. Really? Yeah. I'm sorry that that was your reaction to it because I felt like there was a lot of guilt and sadness. But I think Jenny understands why Kurt can live there. And so, you know, she sees it a little differently, perhaps. Kerr was a threat to her children at that point, in her eyes. The sad thing is he wasn't allowed to go live with his mother's. Talk about using the animation in the movie. It, it sort of operates as a kind of glue through a lot of these different things. How did that come about as a solution to the creative problems of... Well, I knew that I was going to animate Kurt's art and his journals from the beginning because... We're creating an immersive experience. It's a movie. I'm not just going to do a static shot of a page. Right. I mean, that would be a rough cut. So I knew that that was going to happen. And that was not easy, trying to find the right visual approach to bring those journals to life. It was incredibly challenging. I mean, we knew that the film needed to feel analog because that was the aesthetic that Kurt sort of worked in. Uh, someone had recently said to me, is Kurt the last rock star? And I almost spit in their face. Like, it's just <laughs> such a stupid question. But I do think, and you could spit in my face now, that it's fair to say he may be the last analog rock star. And I only say that because the whole culture changed after 94 with the advent of the internet. So we knew we were going to have to animate Kurt's drawings and, and bring them to life and created this immersive experience. What I didn't anticipate having to do was render Kurt. I had uh, ended up with two sequences in the film in which 
there was no way to visualize them other than to depict what Kurt was describing. Mm-hmm. And that would require animating Kurt. And I was not looking forward to that. I mean, that seemed like a recipe for disaster. I remember the studio saying to me, you know, dear, this is going to be the torpedo, the thing that torpedoes your film. That's what they said. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't that far off from it. But I found a brilliant Dutch artist named Hisko Hussing. He, you know, worked by hand. His team did 6,000 drawings, and Hisko did 58 oil paintings. They're four by six feet. I mean, this is like old-school Disney-level animation that we don't see in film anymore. I think all the artists on this film were inspired by the material and rose to the moment. And how was working with Frances along the way? Would you check in with her when you discovered stuff? Did she just want to see it at the end, or how would that part of it work? She just wanted to see it when I was ready to show her something at the end. Were there any things that you discovered that were troubling? I mean, the scenes of him with Francis, with Courtney, clearly on drugs as young parents, those are difficult things to watch. They're terrible things to watch. I mean, they're horrible, but they're essential. Were you shocked by them when you first saw them? Man, I remember watching the haircutting scene for the first time and reaching for the phone to call Child Welfare Protection Services, even though the thing had happened 22 years earlier. I mean, I was horrified at some of the stuff I was seeing. And I'm showing it to the audience, you know? You know, it's there for a reason. We carefully considered every choice that we made. Besides being interviewed in the movie, what was Courtney Love's role in the movie? That was it, man. And what was her reaction to the movie since? I thought she was going to hate it. I was convinced. She would say she was going to come in and see it towards the end. And then she wouldn't show up. And I wasn't calling, doing a follow-up call. I thought she was going to absolutely fucking kill me. And I did text Francis after Francis saw the film before Courtney did and was like, you know, your mom's naked in the film a lot. She's like, oh, Jesus, like as if anyone's not seen that before, you know? (laughs) And so Courtney kept sort of saying she was going to come in and then wouldn't. Right. And then finally the week of the premiere at Sundance, we decided, you know, she would come with us and we all sort of agreed that she shouldn't see the film for the first time with an audience in the room. It would be unfair. It would be cruel almost. We were down to the wire, and I had to go to Deluxe to QC the uh, DCP. And I said, um, look, it's your last chance. You know, I'm shipping off in the morning. You should come by. And she's like, well, can I bring a friend? I really don't want to be alone. And I said, why don't you bring Francis? could be a good opportunity for you guys. Francis Courtney showed up, and we showed them the film. It was great that Francis was there. I mean, it was really... Did you sit in on it, too? Or you yeah, just, I was you there. Were, okay. I had to QC the movie. I was having a very different experience from them. I hated the color correction on it, and I hated the mix on it. So I was sitting there having a horrible out-of-body experience <laughs> because I knew I was screwed, and I had a premiere in three days. And 10 minutes in, I was texting the um, post soup, make sure you have sessions set up when I get out of here because we got to go fix this mix. And the movie was over, and Courtney started walking towards me. And I go, oh, here it comes, here it comes. And she she didn't ask for a single cut. Now, when you see this film, it is one of the least vain depictions of a female icon that has ever been presented on the screen. It's funny. I was in Seattle last week at a premiere And this woman, who I subsequently learned was Alice Wheeler, a photographer of the scene, 
started sort of wailing on me. She didn't have raise her hand. She just started screaming at me in the middle of the moderated session about how something along the lines of Courtney got to me. You thought Courtney got to you? Like that I did the film through Courtney's point of view. Oh, interesting. Um, now, it, it deserves some attention, okay? Because first of all, it is, as I said, the least glamorous depiction that you could possibly do of a woman at that age. Naked. Talking about shooting up heroin while being pregnant. She's shooting up. She's shooting up when she's pregnant. She's got scabs picking off her face. I mean, it's just, it's not pretty. She's singing Amazing Grace in a rocking chair off key while she's rocking her baby, clearly doped up. I mean, it is not pretty. What it was is that the way we see Courtney in this film is the way Kurt saw her. She's viewed through Kurt's eyes and not the way the media depicted her. And so if you come into the movie with a preconceived notion of Courtney, you're going to be challenged. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. I mean, he was in love with her, obviously. He was in love with her. Right. He was in love with her. He married her. He had a kid with her. He didn't divorce her. Look at the footage in December 25th, 1993, when they're in the bathtub. And she goes, you know, I'm really happy right now. And he goes, yeah. Me too. Me yeah. too. Yeah. Now, the fact that anyone would suggest that I, what, I stage those scenes? You know, like, I mean, <laughs> it's insane. Cool it's insane. And like I said, I had the authority because Courtney had signed a waiver to let me do whatever I wanted to do. So if I saw footage of her beating the crap out of Kurt, I was prepared to go there. I wasn't going to hold back. So there's this videotape of me from uh, Seattle last week where this woman starts, I just kind of lose it regrettably, I must say, because I should have kept my shit. I would have loved to have challenged her and asked her, well, where in the movie, which part did you think was pro Cordy? The part where she's on junk and she's rocking her baby doing Amazing Grace? Like, <laughs> but I lost it because it was an attack on my credibility. Because if I stand before the world and say, I had final cut on this film and I did not receive a single note to change a thing from anyone other than Wendy Cobain, of which I refuse to do, then you are attacking my credibility and you are telling me that I'm lying. And I don't like when people attack my credibility because the one thing I've always felt about this film was that we needed to be as transparent and candid as possible, which is why I'll do interviews with anyone from a, a local high school paper to the New York Times. It doesn't matter. I'm on Twitter at Brett Morgan answering questions all day long from fans until the end of next week. And then I will retire from being a spokesperson because I feel an obligation to the fans that I had access to things that nobody's had access to and people want to know. And maybe it's, it's, I shouldn't, but I do feel an obligation to share what I experienced. I mean, part of the thing that was so crazy on this film was when I unearthed this stuff two years ago, you know, and I heard this Beatles and I loved her cover and all that. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, I feel selfish. I should share this with the world. But I also have no intention of being one of those grumpy people in Seattle who has dedicated the last 20 years to reprinting photographs that they took in their youth. So the Seattle experience was difficult. It wasn't, man. It's There's a small group of people who have made their entire careers off grunge. And, you know, I did my film about Bob Evans, I moved on. I did my film about the Yippies, and I moved on. I did my film about the Stones, I moved on. I did the Kurt film, and I'm moving on. And that's it for this official companion podcast for the HBO documentary, Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck. Thank you to director Brett Morgan. It's been a pleasure. 
Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, premieres on Monday, May 4th at 9 p.m. Eastern on HBO and HBO Now. I'm Hugo Lindgren. Thanks for joining us.